don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, gender politics in the Iranian urban space with Alex Shams. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Alex Shams, who's uh, uh, working in uh, journalism in, uh, in Palestine and with a background in uh, and, uh, gender and urbanism uh, in Iran, and uh, he's also the, the co-editor of uh, Ajam Media Collective, and uh, an extremely prolific uh, and useful uh, Facebooker as well, <laughs> like always have a great, <laughs> great link and of information, I mean... Uh, half of what I read now must be thanks to you, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, hello, Alex. Uh, so today we will talk about um, those uh, politics of gender in uh, in Iran, in the in the in the city, in public space, and and uh, this is not to um, this is not not to speak about Palestine, but since uh, it's on Archipelago's map for 2015. I guess we will talk again to talk to talk about that once we'll be uh, in Bethlehem or Ramallah. Uh, so let's talk let's talk about that. But uh, let's talk about Iran. But maybe before even starting uh, starting there, could you maybe tell us a little bit what uh, you're doing those days? Uh, we're recording this uh, conversation in Paris, so you're you're on the move quite a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm currently based, as you said, uh, in Bethlehem in Palestine, um, working there for for Man News Agency, which is uh, the largest independent Palestinian news organization. But um, Currently, I'm in Paris for about a week because my family, my parents are traveling between Iran and Los Angeles. So I went to come meet them. They can't come to Israel and I can't go to Iran currently. So we, we had to meet here mm. in neutral middle ground. But. Uh, and so maybe in terms of uh, of work, uh, could you could you tell us a little bit what your daily life uh, looks like uh, beside uh, reading a lot of articles online? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in terms of my work in Bethlehem, um, a lot of our, our, our work or our focus is on breaking news. So we have correspondence basically in every town and village across uh, the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and um, sort of working on Arabic, working on translation, also doing reporting, um, going out, um, photography as well at times, uh, let's say when there's clashes around the area we're in um but yeah mostly focusing on reporting human interest kind of um social stories uh from palestine from palestinian daily life mm. um and so as i said earlier we'll we'll talk about that uh more in depth uh, in february but so uh let's go let's go to iran now from uh, from now and um uh, And uh, and see those uh, politics of gender in uh, Iranian cities, and uh, that allows me to say that also that uh, this topic will be uh, part of your contribution to the Phenomenalist pa uh, papers. So uh, I very much look forward to that. Uh, um, so this is a research that you've been undertaking for quite a while, right? And you're you're preparing uh you're preparing it in uh, anthropology as uh, as a potential uh, phd student so could you could you give us a little bit of background uh 
Um, sure. So, um, although, like I said, I'm currently working in Palestine, um, my background is actually Iranian-American, and um, the majority of my family, besides my, my father, are still in Iran, stayed in Iran, um, and so from the time that I was you know, born, growing up, we were in Iran uh, frequently. Um, and so I think the, the, you know, the, the study of urbanism is something that, that came very early, and I was kind of trying to understand the environment, trying to understand the difference between the two environments, going back and forth. Um, and then for my, my previous project during my master's, my research was focused primarily on, um, kind of ideological and material uh, factors that went into this kind of dramatic changes in gender policy, um, specifically regarding women's access to the public sphere and to education, uh, following the revolution. Um, and so this, during this research, although my primary focus was, um, you know, the, the, the question I was looking at was how did it happen in the course of about 15 or 20 years? that um, the percentage of Iranian women who attended university went from about 0.25%, so a quarter of a percent in 1979, to about 65 to 60 percent uh, today. And the vast majority of that, that increase, about, like, let's say 40 percentage points, um, occurred over the course of about 20 years, uh, immediately following the revolution, kind of in the mid-80s and 90s. Um, so that research was primarily about um, women's own experiences and explanations of what happened, what were the changes, um, how did the family structure change so dramatically following a, like this popular revolution, um, and how did, um, you know, the various mechanisms of, of control, of decision-making, how, how were people's minds changed so dramatically in the course of 20 years regarding um, women's access to education, but more broadly as well, women's access to the public sphere. Um, because for me, yeah, looking at education was, was an attempt to, to gauge and to look at one factor that goes into this broader access. Um, so regarding this topic, um, primarily investigating two, two aspects of two uh, sort of factors that were, that were linked to the, to the issue, um, one was the ideological one in terms of the, the advent of a discourse on Islamic rights and, and um, what is and kind of the opening of a discussion about what kind of policy should an Islamic republic have and how should gender be approached in that policy. Um, because what you had is interesting, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, one of the interesting aspects of the discourse of, of the, the revolutionaries, both from the leftists and the kind of Islamic currents that existed, um, which were both very much in dialogue with each other, both in prisons as well as in universities, um, was that both were formulating a critique of gender policy under the Shah, one informed more by uh, Soviet or leftist, um, sort of international leftist critiques of um, sort of bourgeois capitalism and its relationship to the, to the question of women, as, as they said, um, and the other kind of approaching it from more of an Islamic, Republican, modernizing Islamist uh, discourse. Um, and so... What you had in the course of, 19, of about a few years, 1979, 1980, 1981, was the formulation of a discourse around gender and a policy of gender that obviously has changed very much since then, has been undergoing constant changes, um, but which really set in motion this, this massive set of changes that were, I think, completely unforeseeable, both um, for those in power as well as like for the people participating in the changes. Um, and so on top of the revolution itself, which was a mass popular mobilization in which, um, you know, you had the, 
you know, one of, you know, mass participation from all sectors of society, um, flooding the streets of every major city and kind of taking back the boulevards, which the Shah had constructed throughout the center of Iranian cities, which were actually constructed um, based on the house money and boulevards in Paris. They were built following uh, <laughs> a visit in the 1870s by the, the Qajar king of Iran at that time, who saw the boulevards of house money and, and determined that it was time to do the same thing in Tehran. But we can discuss that a little bit more. Um later. Um, and then kind of this process that was then followed by an eight-year-long war in which um, you did have this mass mobilization of women um, and, and, and men as well. I mean, men obviously in terms of the military front, but those I think those contributions are often spoken about, right? But we also had this massive mobilization of women that did contribute to the, to the rise of a social um, re- kind of revolution, and this massive transformations uh, in expectations of, of women's access to public sphere. Um, and so I think, like I said, I mean, the research itself was focused primarily on education and looking at that as kind of education obviously being a gateway. Um, because even when I look at my own family, for example, um, in the, the generation of my aunts, for example, um, it was basically forbidden uh, for them to go to school past a certain point. Um, although, I mean, we're a relatively devout family. Um, and during the 1970s and, and 60s and 50s, the idea of women being educated in this way didn't make sense. Um, and my grandmother, for example, was married at 13, and the expectation that was for my, my, my aunts who would be around 18 or 19, um, which was, of course, for them a vast improvement over my, my grandmother's situation, uh, as far as they could see. But uh, within the course of about one or two generations, so then if when you come down, just actually just one generation from my aunt to, 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 my, to my age, to, to my cousins who are in their 20s or 30s, you have expectations of, of work, expectations of um, education. I mean, the, the, the option is available and that it cannot be denied. Um, and that, for example, it must be included in a marriage contract, which would be considered absurd before, because even though, in, let's say, in an Islamic marriage contract, the, the option of marriage must be available, um, the idea of putting the conditions stipulating, for example, your, your divorce or um, the, the right to divorce, the right to education, the right to work, which are all things that can technically be denied unless they're put in the marriage contract. Um, and so, for example, the last 10 years, you have new new laws, for example, introducing mandatory stipulations of right to work, right to education, right to divorce in the marriage contract um, as a default setting. Um, sort of topics like this, how, how did that come to be normative in the course of, of 20 or 30 years? Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if you'd like, I can also speak kind of about the findings or what, what those experiences were and what, what people, who how they credited as well these changes. Sure, and I, I suppose we'll get to that, but maybe uh, almost going back, backwards, uh, not backwards, but uh, going a little bit um, before even what we just talked about, um, maybe what we should say, and uh, even more for me than for you, I suppose, is, is how... Uh, the critique from outside uh, the um, sort of uh, feminist manifesto that we would like um, to to see in Iran has has two uh, two uh, ways that are uh, traps. I would say discursive traps that uh, we should uh, we should always avoid. One being the comparison uh, between uh, between pre seventy nine and post seventy nine, and saying uh, almost trying to wonder which one was better, which uh, which uh, obviously is a wrong way of looking at things, uh, but also not not trying to have a, a sort of a, a very uh, Western uh, uh, 
still very much uh, influenced by colonial logic, uh, cri critique of, of the situation as well. And um, and uh, for having having read a, a few of your articles, that's uh, it seems like you're you're fighting on on both fronts as well. Uh, one uh, one uh, within Iran and the other uh, in the U.S. or in Europe in in how. Uh, uh, the, the imaginary that is uh, built uh, around Iran is, uh, is uh, ridiculous and, and actually goes uh, very much against uh, uh, the, the feminist struggle in, in Iran, for example. I mean, I, I'm thinking of one article in particular, but this, this, uh, this, uh, um, this uh, article in... Uh, Uh, was it in the Telegraph or I forgot that says like that 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 woman had been banned from universities in Iran, which was a, a, a stupid uh, a t selling title uh, based on on uh, on no reality whatsoever. But maybe maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this uh, before even the content of the critique, uh, the the sort of positioning of the critique. Well, I think I mean, for example, to go to that specific article, it's. Uh, There, there was, for example, a law that was passed to, per, to create quotas for men to enter in specific universities. And now that, that quota was be, you know, coming from a context in which men were basically being squeezed out of the university. As I mentioned, women today comprise about 65% of university students, and that number, number keeps declining, for example, um, because of compulsory military service for men. There are certain obstacles to men's involvement in, the, in education that we're seeing becoming much more prominent in the last 10 years, five years. Um, and and but but of course none of that con none of that context is is presented in the Western media, um, and it becomes about as you said the title was women banned from 70 universities in Iran, um, which was quite surprising because it wasn't even universities there were specific courses and and and, and this isn't any any way to defend or or to take a stance on the issue of this quota that was introduced but merely to talk about how it's being represented and discussed, um, and I think that's one of the the more bizarre or, or difficult parts sometimes about having the conversations about Iran is that it's hard to think of a country that's more maligned and misunderstood um, and in which, I mean, these policies of history is completely uh, obscured and is, is completely, I think, almost non-existent even for like relatively educated Western publics. And, and, this, and another issue that comes back in terms of this misunderstanding is that even... Um, you know, there has been this problem, I think, in Western feminism um, since the outset of, of the, the desire to find those that look like you elsewhere um, and the inability to recognize that, that struggle takes different forms in different places and that not every feminism will have a specific, like, you know, Western secular liberal um, genealogy that emerged from very specific factors that, that were um, inherent in the political situation, social economic situations of... Um, the position basically of white middle class women in a number of Western countries at a specific moment uh, in the past. Um, and these critiques obviously exist within, uh, you know, these, the societies themselves in terms of women of color, uh, feminisms in the United States or, or immigrant um, and other, you know, movements of racial justice that incorporate feminism within Europe as well. But also when we're going to, to Iran or to Europe, or sorry, to Iran, um, there is sometimes a difficulty in recognizing that women in Iran are not women as a category, but are, of course, Iranian women, and the, the, their lives are embedded within the fabric of, of, the, of Iran and social life in Iran. Um, and we can't talk about a popular revolution without also talking about women in popular revolution. 
and um, and specifically in Iran because the framework, um, you know, the outline of the discourse, the outline of the discussion is one in which uh, you have the situation that's almost reversed from any other country uh, that I can think of in the region, um, which is that Islamic human rights or the, the concept of women's rights in Islam um, is kind of the, the default. And that is the point from which every discussion is, is taking place, and that, that has to be reckoned with as a discourse. Um, and this is completely different, let's say, from the situation in Egypt, in, in Lebanon, in, in Pakistan, and basically any side of, your, uh, of Iran you look, you don't see this kind of arguments, you don't see these kinds of discussions happening, because um, one, you have a religious discourse which is dominated by more or less patriarchal um, neo-traditionalist interpretations um, who, that are, particularly within um, the Sunni strand of Islam, these kind of very neo-traditionalist uh, approaches that that fight back against a lot of the diversities that we've historically seen within Islamic thought, um, and in which uh, women's groups see themselves as oppositional to the religious institutions. Um, and so if you go, even if you look at, let's say, feminism uh, in Lebanon, feminism in Egypt, there, there do exist feminisms operating from within, let's say, a religious framework. Uh, and I mean, in the West as well, we have Christian feminism existing as a, as a relatively marginal, but still uh, existing uh, force. Um, and whereas in Iran, this is kind of the default. And this is from, from which, within this position, people are expressing themselves and women are expressing themselves using a discourse that I think is, it can be completely unintelligible. Um, when you have a situation in which secularism and laicite has been equated with women's rights and feminism. Mm. Um, and I think there, there is this inability to, to, to connect or to be able to understand the other, to recognize the other, when the other does not uh, resemble oneself, both ideologically as well as um, physically. I mean, the veil becoming this most obvious manifestation of this, of these, uh, how people are missing each other or not being able to, or, or, or demanding to find themselves in the other in order to accept the other and to understand the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were preparing this conversation, I was telling you about this film I saw last week uh, called Iranian uh, from uh, this uh, uh, Iranian living in Paris uh, director, Miran Tamadan. And uh, I was I was thinking of it as particularly rep- representative of this uh, of um, of of this problem, this discursive problem that 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 never challenges the status quo. Because precisely, you do have uh, on the one hand a sort of what you call the neo-traditionalist uh, uh, vision of model of society, and on the other one, another one uh, like uh, and and it's it's not it's not innocent that this director lives in lives in France, which has for a national religion and uh, insists on the fact that it's a religion, a sec- hyper secularism. Uh, and so in this film, you saw, you see, for example, this. Uh, so it's it's basically him inviting four theologists, Iranian theologists, in at a, his um, mom's house in uh, near Tehran, and um, and they talk they talk over uh, forty eight hours, um, uh, trying to. Con- I mean, he's trying to convince them that uh, uh, that the model of society they're they're uh, they're they've been uh, implementing. Uh, since seventy nine is uh, is uh, is is not the one he wants to live in, and and it you have this you have this scene and it actually happens pretty a few times during the film where his his uh, uh, his arguments are are being destroyed by the theologists because they're they're extremely eloquent and they're they're extremely convincing as well, just because. Um, 
the axiom of the conversation is 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 what is the problem, not the arguments that are given. Uh, so in the case of uh, you're talking about the veil, I mean the hijab. It's like uh, 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 this uh, this director is um, is arguing uh, arguing against it, but um, uh, again, like in the in the those theologians managed to convince him and uh, with legitimately that that secularism was also an ideology somehow and and at the end of the day this conversation again is is happening between five men trying to decide what to do with the women of their society so uh whether whether you're you're forcing the veil or enforcing the veil, like during the the, the regime of the Shah, as it's pointed out by uh, Minou Mualem in in her book. Uh, uh, it's in both cases, it's it's uh, it's uh, there's no difference in in how much anti-feminist it, it would be. So uh, so maybe maybe the thing to do is to to go back to the very uh, axiom of uh, of a of a debate of a national debate like this one or even international debate. And uh, and questions the very founding of this conversation, isn't it? Definitely. I mean, I, I haven't actually seen the film yet, um, but but I'm I'm skeptical having seen the trailer and and also having seen this kind of discourse. It's particularly this kind of, um, you know, you have a director who sees himself as this kind of cutting edge oppositional figure because he's going to sit and talk to five clerics. Um, and then he's going to present to them the ideas of secularism and fight them as if, for example, they never studied secularism, which it's, it's, these are mandatory topics for clerics uh, to study um, and also to learn, of course, the, the counterpoints to whatever. If he's going to engage on that in, in that way, then they have also the counterpoints. This is part of the course of study. Um, and and it's, it's, it's very interesting even to watch the kind of films that Iranians abroad make versus those that are being produced in Iran and being seen in Iran, because they take a completely different form. I can't imagine a film um, with such a kind of shallow premise being produced in Iran, because you have much more, interestingly, you have much more um, sophisticated critiques of the role of religion in public life, um, or of kind of whether you want, like, in terms of the hypocrisies or betrayal of secularism, in terms of uh, assuring certain promises or, or certain social and political goals or realizing those goals um, being produced in Iran. I mean, there's, for example, a film, um, Mar Mulak, means The Lizard, which was produced a number of, of, I believe, about 10 years ago, which shows a thief uh, who escapes from prison. You know, he's a common thief, but he meets a cleric when he's in the hospital of the prison, which happens to be a shared hospital. And then the cleric, he ends up stealing the cleric's clothes and running away. But then he's mistaken for a cleric as he's trying, he's going towards the Turkish border to leave the country. And he's mistaken for a cleric that was expected in the village next to the border that he's trying to be smuggled from. And so you have a, what, what, what ends up being a very, very sophisticated critique, um, which, which one is obviously extremely subversive to portray a, a, a village cleric uh, a very believable village cleric who's actually just a common thief that happens to have, you know, picked up a few phrases and kind of repeated them enough. Um, and then is using this role as a cleric to try and figure out how to get himself out of the country and take advantage of the situation. Um, versus then the security forces or the police, the local police, who are hunting him down at the same time in this village, who become shown, despite being, let's say, the, the representatives of the state, obviously, in the film, um, end up being seen as a kind of unforgiving understanding of Islam or form of Islam and a kind of unforgiving um, 
even as they have justice and the law on their side, it's clear to the viewer that this is the this is the this is the negative character who doesn't properly understand how religion should be how it should should take part in daily life, and that um, from within this this movie you're able to see kind of a critique that says that in our society we like religion must function in certain ways, but the way that the state is enacting these ways, sorry, is enacting these these ideals is, is incorrect, and the common thief has more integrity than the the, the, the you know the Islamic Republic <laughs> figure in the village. Um, and you have, I mean, and this is produced with state money in Iran. That's the other thing, right? All of these films are produced with state money um, and are shown in public theaters and are, and are watched. Um, you're right, and, and so it's very interesting to watch and to hear these kind of diasporic Iranian figures who, for the most part, have been absent for the last 30 years, 35 years, have become either previously were educated before the revolution or have since been educated with, within the framework or, or discourse of whether it be French laicite or, or other forms of secularism um, that exist in, in the Western, particularly the United States, um, coming and, and imagining themselves as oppositional, but as you point out, merely just reversing the terms of the debate and not questioning the entire structure and not taking into account the much more sophisticated discussions about the role of religion in public life and, and gender in public life and all of these questions that are happening within Iran in very public ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe now that, now that we established all that, we can go back to the, to the public space and the space of the city and uh, maybe what you were describing as well as those, um, those uh, pre-revolution uh, uh, transformation of the... Uh, I mean, pre-Shah even uh, transformation of Tehran under the uh, Osmanian uh, model, and uh, obviously everyone who looks a little bit at the politicization of of the of the city and the, in the nineteenth century and everything know what it means in in terms of uh, police suppression. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, you will tell us, I'm sure, but the, that it probably counted in the two thousand nine or. Uh, movement uh, uh, that we call the, the Green Revolution in in how <clears throat> in how the 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 the, uh, the authorities and the police and the guardians of the revolution were able to to uh, move very fast on their motorbike and uh, and go go against the, the demonstrators. But um, so yeah, I mean, could, could you tell us more about this uh, particular space of the city uh, in in your research? How how does it come about? Definitely. Um, so one thing that's interest, or just as a kind of basic framework, um, the, the majority of Iranian cities follow this very similar pattern. You have what was previously or, or currently a walled city um, that retains this kind of narrow alleyways in which the public spaces are primarily associated or, or around mosques. Um, so large mosques or, um, yeah, primarily mosques. And then you had basically in the, the second half of the 19th century, the first efforts at modernization, which were kind of expanding beyond the walls. You had the, the threat of, um, you know, marauding uh, tribes or, or invasion kind of receding over over during this period of time as the state became, even as the state was still quite weak, but it was increasingly centralized. Um, and and the, the form of threat and security uh, threats were, were different from what they had been previously, right? So it was fine to, to expand outside of the walls. Um, and so about the same time, like I said, um, beginning in the 1860s, there was a more organized form um, that then began to take very clear shape in the 1870s and 1880s that was modeled directly on the Haussmannian uh, reforms in Paris and the, the kind of vast destruction that was wreaked on the, the urban fabric in the city. Um, and 
so now what you have, like I said, the, the map of every Iranian city is basically very similar. You have the faint outline of the old city with the narrow streets and then huge, you know, it'll be depending on how big the city is, four to ten massive boulevards that cut directly into the center of the old city. And if I mean, if you travel upon them, you have no idea that, that an old city exists within the corners and squares between these the boulevards. And the, the boulevards, of course, um, as you said, they're... Um, I think many readers or sorry, uh, listeners are probably familiar with um, the what was what were, what were the intentions and what were kind of what was the result of what happened in Paris. Um, but you did have specific features in Iran as well, besides the um, sort of facilitating security control over the city and, and kind of um, power over space, um, which had to do, for example, with marginalizing the mosque in in the city in terms of the urban fabric, because, like I said, the mosque lost its place as a central part of urban space and was actually quite marginalized within these kind of hard-to-access parts of the city that were no longer kind of centers of power visually or ideologically or um, whatever it may be. Um, and so you have, you know, the creation of this kind of grand architecture, palaces uh, within the cities, large boulevards, and that kind of continued and became the model for which uh, urban planning in Iran was kind of based for many years. And you obviously have specific variants based on, let's say, British influence in the port cities in the south or Russian influence in some of the northern areas. But for the most part, this model was became very standardized. And so this, I mean, becomes interesting in terms of, if we're talking about gender and urban space as well, it becomes... Uh, there, there are certain aspects that became quite relevant in the 1930s when you had the secularizing reforms of Reza Shah, who was the, the first Shah um, of the Pahlavi dynasty. And he, for example, was following the uh, kind of reforms of Ataturk very closely. And, for example, he introduced a, a ban on the veil, which was enforced primarily within, you know, the, on the boulevards in the, the kind of the public spaces of the new city, these kind of consumer um, bourgeois boulevards that became kind of a new commercial heart for the city and a new idea of how one was supposed to relate to the city, obviously. And so, of course, at this time, increasingly, the veil became associated and was associated with this kind of backwards, uh, you know, narrow alleyways of the, the oriental city, so to speak. Um, and kind of the unveiled woman was meant to be on the, the, the new street and presenting this kind of new facade um, of what the country would be and should be. Now, uh, Ironically or unironically or surprisingly or unsurprisingly, around the same time, it was mandated for prostitutes to wear the veil. Um, within, for example, in Tehran, in um, in the red light district, the sex workers were mandated by the police to wear the veil. Once again, in order to shift the the stigma of, um, you know, of sex work and, and basically the stigma of being, for example, loose women in public or having loose morals onto those who wore the veil in order to kind of dramatically shift within the course of, you know, a year, two years, um, understandings of how women should be, how, how women basically should exist in public space. Um, and eventually these reforms failed and were kind of repealed, um, And but you did have a lasting effect in which the veil basically became very rare or was very much associated with backwardness and ruralness in the city, uh, in Iranian cities. And now moving uh, forward... As I said, what's interesting is that um, the major changes in the 1870s and 1880s were really precipitated by the Parisian reforms. And in the 1960s, um, when you had the, the new Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, came into power, the primary 
um, input in terms of urban planning was 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 American. Um, and there was kind of, for example, the Tehran urban plan that was revised in the 60s and 70s was done with the input of American uh, planners with uh, American assumptions that I think were also incorrect for the United States at that time as well in terms of a, a suburbanizing model um, and understanding of, uh, I mean, it's really quite ridiculous, an understanding of the Iranian family. I remember, you know, because in order to make these plans, obviously you have to have assumptions about what social life looks like and social organization. And I think the family was expected to have a husband, a wife, three kids. Um, you know, the husband takes the car to work and then the wife takes the other car, apparently, which no one had ever <laughs> uh, to, you know, to take the kids and to do shopping. Um, and thus, you know, the Grand Boulevards become basically f the further you go north, which is now kind of the richer part of the city, the, the Grand Boulevards become highways and become freeways. And so you have basically this a city of an old city further south that has the beginnings of boulevards. The, then kind of the central city, which is largely just large, big boulevards and no more of that urban fabric, the older urban fabric. And then you have a city of highways as you go into the north, interspersed with small villages that have become kind of absorbed into the city. Um, and so it's interesting, of course, because uh, first of all, the average family size was about seven or I think probably was seven or eight at that time. Um, so this model really didn't relate to anyone that you could see maybe 5% of the population was living a life that resembled this. But even the existence of two cars... And then structuring a city based on this two-car model, um, I think, I think basically quite similar to Los Angeles in many ways, uh, ended up creating a kind of interesting disjuncture. I mean, today, for example, it's highways um, with people going these, you know, 100 kilometers an hour speeds are also where you get taxis and people stand on the side and they've been kind of reinvented as they've been, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I can think of a term, but they've been understood as boulevards and people interact with them as boulevards, despite the fact that they're obviously extremely dangerous and are full of speeding traffic. Now, regarding the protests and in terms of political um, uh, changes in with relationship to protests, um, it's what's interesting is that throughout, I mean, throughout the 60s and the 70s, um, largely because of the repression of political, dis of secular political dissidents, primarily like leftist organizations, you did have the reemergence of the cleric as a very strong oppositional force. And there are many factors that I can't get into in terms of why that started to become more prominent in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and, and you had this kind of reemergence of the mosque as a center and, you know, coming out of this, despite the fact that it was marginalized in terms of urban space, it became a center of political protest. It became once again, uh, a site in which protests, um, you know, could be launched and, and, uh, you know, had a protected space that allowed for enough momentum to be gathered for these crowds to grow and for them to move into the space of the city, which I think, you know, if you look at Syria, um, particularly the first year or two, you see a very similar phenomenon, is that because the state, uh, to a certain extent, has to respect the sanctity of the mosque and the religious space, it becomes a center for protests, um, regardless of the content of the protest, because it, it, you can actually create that momentum. Um, and so what was interesting is that, as I said, in 1979, these spaces became um, sort of staging grounds for these mass protests that took over the boulevards, that really kind of reverse this the, the logic um, of the urban uh, of of the the new you know topography of, of Tehran or of, of major other cities, and which allowed you know barricades to be put on major streets, and then um, but protesters could also, for example, uh, fade into the the older urban fabric on mm -hmm. the sides, um, and so it, it this this. This geography allowed for a very kind of complex relationship to space and relationship to like physical acts and protest. 
um, that, you know, what we've seen since is that this older part of the city, um, where you do have this mix of um, smaller alleyways and boulevards, has really been marginalized economically, socially, and culturally in the last 30 years. Um, and there has been, in line with a broader shift towards suburbanization and, and kind of, uh, you might say, modernization, um, is that you have, you know, the development of BRT and you have these kind of boulevards that have become a much more standard form, boulevards and highways that are much more standard. The majority of the population lives there. And the majority of the population now, um, I mean, you know, comparing, let's say, 30 years ago and today, the percentage of people in universities, about 55 to 60% of young people go to university and finish a four-year degree, which um, I, I believe is actually higher than the United States. And, and so the dynamics of social protest, the rise of the middle class, um, have also really dramatically changed uh, the relationship of protest to public space. Because the university does not have that same protected uh, character, for example, but in 2009 became one of the centers of protest. Um, and and the, let's say the veneer, or, or, or the belief that that is a protected space um, is much flimsier than the mosque. Um, and, and is violated much more readily by security forces. And what was interesting is that, for I mean, I, I've, been, I've been, for example, in protests in, 2000, in 2010, um, so on the kind of butt end of what was a year of protests, almost, um, in which the, you know, the, the, the fact that mosques were not used meant that there was never a time when the momentum, it became very difficult to create that momentum when security forces were moving around, when the BRT, the bus rapid transit lines, which now go up and down every major boulevard in, in, for, in certain parts of Tehran, um, they become used by security forces in that moment to, to be able to move around traffic much quicker um, and not only to move back and forth between potential protest spots, um, but also to uh, facilitate arrests and the movement of arrested individuals immediately out of the area so that it can't be, for example, crowds can't like, pressure security forces to let, to let those people go. And um, what was interesting is that in 2009, you did have increasingly, particularly as the protests continued past the first few days and first few weeks in which they needed specific days to create momentum, in which religious holidays became, um, you know, uh, the, a day in which people would go out to protest, particularly because so many religious holidays have been, um, not I'm, I'm not they've been manipulated, uh, but they've instrumentalized. Yeah, been instrumentalized by the state themselves itself as days of protest and kind of the idea of Islam and Shia Islam specifically as a religion of protest and social justice has been instrumentalized in such a way that every single holiday. Um, if you ask people, you can understand both the religious connotation as well as one related to social justice more broadly. And so it becomes very easy then for the, for the Green Movement protesters to also instrumentalize these holidays in the same way. And you had, um, I mean, it actually became a really big subject of discussion and kind of mockery, but um, people weren't sure how to take it because you had kind of jokes being made from the more conservative end of the spectrum or those who were more opposed to the protests that... Um, you had suddenly tens of thousands more people in the mosques than there had been in many years uh, because these protesters were flooding the mosques because they knew that this was a protected space in which this momentum could also be gathered, that, that, that the boulevards um, and the urban space prevents in many ways and makes it much more difficult to uh, get that concentration um, for a protest. Mm. Uh, so that's one aspect of uh, of the space of the city. I mean, the the one of uh, massive demonstration like the one we saw in two thousand nine. Uh, 
but I suppose there's, uh, there's another uh, <clears throat> another aspect of the public space of the city that I'm sure uh, intervenes in your research. I mean, in particular, in this aspect of, uh, of gender, and uh, it's uh, the, the, the space of daily life, but with a very uh, heavy policing of that has several. Uh, from what I understand, there are several layers. I mean, uh, some sort of uh, moral layers in addition of some uh, uh, strictly, uh, uh, I mean, uh, legal uh, policing uh, that uh, most cities know anyway. And um, and uh, so there's, there's there's something about street scrutiny and dissimulation that must intervene very uh, uh, thoroughly and how how. Uh, uh, Parties in Iran are organized in, uh, in private spaces, and and uh, so there's a space where you would not be seen, and and so there seems to be always this tension between the seen and the unseen, and the dissimulation and the scrutiny, and uh, I'd love to hear more from you about it. Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, in 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 my research focusing on gender and the urban, and urban space and the production of urban space and kind of urban policy in Iran, um, I'm interested both in let's say, morality policing and other forms of surveillance of public space, as well as um, how understandings of gender and ideology and kind of interpretations of the state's gender policy are manifested spatially, right? So, um, I mean, some of the most interesting moments occur... Well, okay, let me back up a second. So if, to just give a historical background on kind of um, understandings of urban space within an, like an Islamic Republican ideological framework in Iran since the 1980s... Um, is that first the 1980s? So we're basically looking at three or four decades um, with basically two identifiable periods. And starting with a war to begin with. Exactly. So that's, so that's the, state, <laughs> the state of emergency that managed to implement all the legislation you might need, right? Exactly. And so you had in the 1980s this kind of, um, um, this, yeah, exactly, this period of emergency in which um, basically efforts and, and attention was focused on the war and, and a massive series of laws um, were implemented, um, you know, which ra range from the most mundane to the most spectacular. Um, and in terms of urban space, you had, I mean, y you had this kind of moment of re revolutionary fervor, revolutionary fervor, in which, for example, uh, Imam Khomeini promised that anyone who arrived in the city would be given a house. And within, you know, the period of a few months, hundreds of thousands of people had moved to Tehran. And suddenly Imam Khomeini realized that being in charge of the country doesn't mean you can build apartments at your command, right? But you had these massive land confiscations, you had um, a very kind of revolutionary approach to, uh, I mean, revolutionary and impromptu approach to kind of dealing with the land holdings of the, the previous regime, as well as the approximately one million Iranians who left within the course of about two or three years. Um, and so a lot of those, so you had this massive transformation of ownership in the public sphere and and, base, and you don't have, for example, um, the kind of problems of, of land ownership that in, in Lebanon you have, for example, where because of the civil war, um, many people left, but those the, the land ownership is still kind of, um, it's, it's valued by the courts, it's understood by the courts as still in effect. In Iran, this you didn't have this, you had massive turnover uh, in land ownership uh, and property ownership. And so what you had was a massive expansion of the city over about, you know, millions of people moving into Tehran, not only hundreds of thousands of refugees from the areas near the border with Iraq, which were directly affected, um, some of whom returned, some of whom didn't return when the war ended, but also 
um, just a rapid rate of increase due to the general decline in the economic situation and the concentration of opportunities uh, in cities um, because of this, like I said, this massive shock from the revolution and then from the war afterwards. And what you have then is what we call the Reconstruction Period beginning, I mean, technically being in 1988, but really kind of becoming much stronger in the early 90s and mid-90s under Rafsanjani, who is the president who's often just kind of discussed as a reformist, but um, we could also describe him more in terms of kind of a liberalizing or neoliberalizing policy uh, in terms of economics. And an end to this kind of the more the most explicit or most direct uh, forms of institution of some version of socialism, um, and are going to move more directly to state capitalism with you can, neoliberal tendencies at, at points. Um, and what you have in the '90s is, um, particularly in terms of ideology, you have kind of a diminishing um, a diminishing fervor of the kind that existed in, in the early '80s, and a, and a move more towards um, towards reevaluating and re-understanding and reinterpreting uh, and understanding. And, and, and I think part of it had to do with the, the excesses. You had tens of thousands of executions. You had on every level this kind of revolutionary excess that people became, um, I, I think, were on many levels shocked by. And were also, um, you had exhaustion at the, at, at the top and I think in the, in the general population. And so you had this moment in which um, there was a, a breathing space and a kind of opening up to an extent, about interpretation and how we can understand what Islamic republicanism is supposed to look like, um, and, and, and a focus on the republicanism versus on the revolutionary aspect. And so, I mean, this took many, many forms. Um, in terms of social change, one of the most impact, impactful ones was that, for example, a program that was instituted at the beginning of the Iran-Iraq war to encourage... Um, to encourage uh, Fertility or reproduction, however you want to say it, and to increase the birth control, the birth rate, um, was replaced with one that introduced, for example, condom education and you know sex education in schools and and uh, distribution of condoms, distribution of uh, basically birth control at every kind of level you can think of. Um, that in the period of ten years um, was the most successful voluntary birth control um, program in the world um, historically. It brought, I think, I believe the rate down from about 7.2 children, an average of 7.2 children per family to um, about 2.5, and now it's about 1.6, which I believe is just above France, which is quite surprising in terms of uh, how dramatically in the course of 10 years... I think France is 1.9, but... Oh, okay, yeah. so we beat France <laughs> as well. <laughs> but definitely, but at this point around there, um, which... Uh, and this combined with, let's say, um, the re or you know the diverting or the the ability to invest a massive uh, amount of funds that were previously being used in in, in the war um, to the construction of universities and the construction of kind of social services and, and the expansion of um, social and health and um, other kinds of programs that really just kind of took a break for 10 years almost, or, or were all kind of diverted in one direction. And so what you had in, in, in the realm of urban policy um, was you had the rise of a kind of liberal technocratic um, idea of citizenship and of um, public citizen and kind of what it means to exist in public space as an, as, a, as an Iranian citizen, as an Islamic Republican, you know, as a bearer of Islamic Republican ideology, because this is something as well that's pervasive is that uh, in Iran, as in other countries we can think of, um, citizens are imagined to be purveyors of the ideology and should present themselves in public uh, as 
as, as fitting to that ideology, right? And so the most obvious manifestation is the existence of a dress code uh, that mandates, for example, um, some kind of head covering for women and, and kind of loose clothing, um, which which in the last few years has been interpreted quite liberally. Um, but and also, for example, the forbidding of the wearing of shorts for men um, and various other I'm trying to think. Sometimes it comes into the realm of hairstyles, but usually these are just kind of passing, you know, uh, waves of some of bureaucratic official who decided to, you know, who got a new position, got excited, and then will be replaced within a few months when when the summer season ends, and that's kind of the how it comes. It comes in summer waves because that's when people start challenging it a bit more. Um, but you know, no one's gonna fight with the the coat law in winter because it's freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It's but it's but it's interesting because yeah you had the emergence of a more um, you know so for example you had uh, the Karabashi government in who was the mayor of Tehran in the nineteen nineties um, who instituted a, a reform program that basically made Tehran one of the greenest cities in the Middle East um, because every piece of land uh, and you know any basically any neighborhood of Tehran you go if there's a pocket of land that's empty a park has been built on it um, you have pocket parks in every neighborhood you have the expansion of of the proliferation of really small parks and medium-sized parks across the city, and now you also have much larger parks, um, which became a kind of focus in terms of recreation and leisure and and what expectations were for for leisure and recreation in the city, um, given that, uh, you know, let's say bars had kind of closed down, restaurants in the 1980s basically often shut down, and that kind of culture of eating out uh, seriously declined. The cinema, which is in a global decline, but actually in Iran has now become, in the last 20 years with kind of state funding, become a much larger industry. Um, and you have a number of changes that really, that led to, a, that refocused on kind of the, the public sphere and investing in the public sphere. Um, at the same time, of course, this came with, as, as, you, as you mentioned, as you highlighted, there was an aspect of, um, you know, regulation of this reappearance of the public sphere and kind of recreation of the public sphere. Um, and the institution of what were previously, um, let's say, domestic codes, or which were codes that were followed in the private sphere, um, but were not institutionalized in the public, let's say under the Shah, which were now institutionalized in the public sphere as well. So... Um, for example, the the mandatory veiling is 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 related to a, a custom that was followed in private primarily. I mean, also in public, um, but under the Shah was repressed in the public sphere, which had to do with kind of covering one's head in in uh, around male relations that uh, you're not directly affiliated with if you're a woman. Um, and and so this kind of model of the private sphere was then implemented in the public, and you had this kind of flattening of those two spheres within Iran. Um, and, and you had certain more... Uh, there was a more dramatic flattening in the 1980s, but this has really been kind of relieved. Like, for example, private parties and homes were disrupted in the 1980s in a way that today would be very uncommon to have home raids on parties. Yeah. Um, and there is there has been, along with the kind of rise of liberalism uh, within this, within this Iranian model of liberalism, there is more respect for that kind of private domain. Um, and a lessening, let's say, on home raids or that kind of uh, more... I mean, people ask for bribes, but the, 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 the potential of home raid is quite uh, uh, uncommon these days. Um, and um, so at the same time, you have... Um, the. I mean, and one thing that I, I find interesting as well is not only talking about gender, but as well about sexuality, right? And so what we have is the policing uh, of heterosexuality very intensely in the public sphere, um, and this is in terms of 
being with, um, let's say, a member of the opposite gender who you, you don't have any kind of blood relationship to. Um, this is, of course, policed very strongly. But what's often not discussed is that this kind of targeting of heterosexuality is also extremely productive of homosociality. It's productive of kind of, uh, of, of sociabilities and socialities that are dependent on um, relationships of the same gender. And of course, in every society on earth, homosociality exists to, to a large extent, whether it be you know, in the cafeteria, boys are expected to sit with boys. And let's say if you imagine a girl sitting with a table of boys, it would be understood as quite strange, let's say, in the United States where I was growing up. Um, but in Iran, what's, let's say, different is that the state itself is encouraging and, and, and being productive of homosociality, uh, particularly in the public sphere as well as in the private sphere. And so we take something that exists in the private sphere, this kind of suspicion towards heterosociality for the fear of uh, you know, of um, heterosexuality rearing its its ugly head, as you might say, um, and, you know, disrupting and violating norms of social conduct, um, and a very, very strong preference for the for homosocial interactions, um, which has now become produced and regulated and um, implemented through not only morality police and these kinds of institutions uh, of public order and, and morality, um, but also the segregation of certain forms of public space, um, whether it be just kind of schooling, which is segregated, uh, you know, from the beginning until the end. Um, and I mean, and then... Not college, right? Not college. It takes, in college, it takes a kind of hum almost humorous aesthetic angle where, like, sometimes the doorways will be different, but the auditorium is the same. You know, there, there are certain... And even these are quite limited, mm -hmm. um, particularly since you've had the construction of hundreds of universities in the last 15 years. And... Um, there have sometimes walls in the middle of a classroom or something like that in a... And I think I think you've had people propose this and just been kind of laughed at. I don't okay. think it's quite I think it's it's very uncommon. Um and it would be very unpopular um <laughs> if it was proposed. And I think um and and of course anytime any random cleric in any city says something it makes the Western press. But with in Iran it's not um these ideas don't really aren't, yeah. aren't very mm -hmm. widely even among, let's say, conservatives or right-wingers, they, they don't see these as really necessary what needs to happen um, or important issues to focus on. Um, and so what's interesting in terms of the university stuff as well is that, you know, the expansion of these universities has also meant that, like, let's say this new, this kind of new liberal Tehran urban, um, and liberal I don't, I'm not using, like, in a positive way, but merely to describe kind of, you know, this approach to life. Um, modern consumer culture that we have developing in the major cities that's now been exported to villages and into the most for, you know, far away places in the country because of the expansion of the university system and because of whether it be money or acceptance, you have movements back and forth of people that didn't really exist before that have really kind of created a national space that didn't exist previously, particularly in a country where half the population doesn't speak Persian as a home language in which there are dozens, if not hundreds of, of regional languages um, this has really contributed to a kind of different idea of national modernity um, than we see previously. And so, for example, even in, I realize I'm getting a bit off topic, but even in um, my research, for example, there was a, a case of a village near near Yaz, which is kind of a known as a conservative city, so to speak, um, where a cleric forbid any local from speaking to the women who were attending as students the Islamic university, the Islamic, the Free Islamic University, as it's called, of the village, which had recently opened up, because even though this was, you know, according to some understanding of women's rights and education, and this was state sanctioned, and the state is a representative of Islam as well as just being in the state itself, and they had opened this university, which is partially public, in the village in order to expand education, 
the cleric saw it as kind of exporting the the loose values of the city and of Tehran into the provinces, and you know these these educated, like and yeah, the, the women were not. It wasn't the education that was a problem. It was kind of urban like urban thought coming to the village. Um, but I do feel like I got a bit off track no, from the question. No, no, but I think I think we're reaching a, an interesting uh, 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 lens of conversation uh, the, to for the. Uh, for the listeners and uh, I really thank you for uh, unfolding the complexity of, of this critique which uh, which is what needs to be understood here is like it's not because what's being critiqued is more complex than what we think of it means that the critique does not is not still there and mm-hmm. and, uh, and actually the critique is much more efficient than uh, in the usual uh, 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 stereotypical uh, depictions that are being made of Iran which uh, uh, probably makes us either laugh or cry, depending on the situation. <laughs> but uh, 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 thank you so much, Alex. And uh, I, I hope that uh, in particular the architectural audience of, of this podcast will be, uh, will be sensitive to, your, to this issue you're, you're, you're bringing up because it has, it has everything to do with, uh, with what they're doing on a daily basis. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks. <laughs>